until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner or Jehovah Nisi. Okay, so the key part here is, uh, you know, look at this picture up here in the upper left hand or yeah, left hand corner of your screen. This is wrong. This is inaccurate. It's a crappy picture, right? Because it's made during the Middle Ages. Nothing good came out of the Middle Ages, apparently, right? Because if you look at it, we've got these two armies. Both of them have awesome lances and javelins and spears and swords and shields and, and banners. It's a lie. It's an absolute fabrication. This is not a people that's prepared for, the, for war. There's a lot of, you know, battles mentioned in the Bible. And you're like, oh, okay, it kind of gets tiresome after a while. After a while, you're like, yeah, of course they're going to win. <laughs> Why wouldn't they win? You know, they got David or they got somebody out there. No, they shouldn't have won. This makes no sense. Why? They leave from Egypt on the 15th of Nisan, the first month. Right, the, the, the first month on the 15th day, they leave right after Passover. And then they walk for a month until they get to Rephidim, to the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. When they get there, they need water. They complain. Moses strikes rock. Water comes out of the rock. Thing is, they've been walking for a month with their kids, with their wives, with their families, with old people, right? Walking for a month. Okay, and then here's what's worse. There's no reason, no reason to believe that the Egyptians gave them any weapon systems. I mean, why would they? They thought the Israelites were probably going to come back. Why would they want an armed force wandering out there through the desert that could actually fight against them? They've got no weapons. All they've got are farming implements that maybe they could convert into weapons if they could stop long enough to do it. But they've been walking for a month. Then they get to the southern tip. They have no battle experience. The last few years of the 430 years that they're in Egypt, they're slaves. These guys are not ready to fight, right? They've got no martial history. They've got no standard operating procedures. They've got no known battle formations. They've got no legacy. They've got no known commanders that have already led or been trained to do exactly this. This is a, a motley group of slaves that are at the, at the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula with their families. And then you get this formal army that's that coming from Amalek, the southern end of Canaan in the Negev. They're marching down to engage them. We can't miss this. This is not an easy win. This, in fact, they shouldn't have won. It makes no sense. Okay, but then this also points to this idea that um, Andre Watts on our, our morning prayer call talks about. When God shows up, or when we show up, God shows out. So what is this? There would have been no battle, no need for battle if the Israelites, if Joshua hadn't gone into the valley. There's no, there's no battle, no battle to be won. But then the battle couldn't be won in the valley, though. It was necessary, but not sufficient by itself. They had to go, and then there's only one way that it could be won, and that is God. God had to win it. Okay, so this gives us two very clear, very easy to understand roles. One, our job, show up. That's it. Just be obedient. Just show up. Thank God it's not based on our talent because guess what? You ain't got none. <laughs> you, I ain't got none. No one in here has the talent it would take to do what God is asking us to do. But that's not our role. 
our job is to show up. As big of a soup sandwich as you are, right? He just says, show up. That's it. And what's his job? His job is the victory. His job is to complete it. His job is to show out. Now, here's the crazy part. Satan can't beat God. Period. That's it. There's, there's, a, there's a period at the end of that sentence. Satan can't beat God. Not a comma, not a semicolon, not any of these other weird punctuation marks. It's a period. Why? If God tells us to go do something and he shows up, that's it. So Satan's only hope, Satan's only hope for success is literally keeping us off the field. That's it. That's his only hope. Why do you suppose it is he expends so much time and effort scaring us? Getting us scared to talk about Jesus at work. I'm terrified. I admit it. Or looking weird when we're standing on a street corner talking to somebody. Or literally, I, w I felt like I was having my gums scraped. The other day when Jeanette and I were there and I'm like asking the waiter, is there anything I could pray for for you? Why would I be scared of that? Right? It's because Satan says, look, you can't win. And it's just like this. So you got these little kids out there playing flag football. They're cute. Right? It's kind of like us. And this is who they're taking on, right? They're taking on NFL football players. This is a good representation of Israel against the army of Amalek, against, of you against Satan. You ain't going to do it. You can't win. So what does God say? Just take the field. That's it. I win, not you. I win. But you got to take the field. There would be no need for God to part the Red Sea if, if the Israelites never left Egypt, there'd be no need for God to consume Elijah's sacrifice in his battle with the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel if Elijah hadn't issued the challenge and shown up. I tell you, this happened to me, not recently, but in January. So Dan, Rick, and I were like, oh, man, we should totally do a night of prayer. This is going to be awesome. Right? So we, we start planning it, and it's going to be awesome. We get one week out, man, I'm telling you, it feels like swimming upstream. It feels like pushing rocks uphill. And so literally one week out, I'm in the boarding area of my flight getting ready to go out of town for some business. One week out, and, he, and Dan calls. He's like, dude, let's just cancel this thing, man. It's just too hard. It, it doesn't feel like we don't, that no one may show up. It just may be us, which would just be weird, right? Let's, uh, it's just hard. It's difficult. I just don't feel any energy here. And we're getting beat up. Satan is literally beating us up. And I'm like, man, you are totally right. Let's cancel this thing. I mean, there are other things I'd rather do. Let's just drop it. And then the funny part is, through the conversation, I'm actually late for boarding. I didn't realize it at the time. They, thank God they held the plane. But they, he starts saying, he's like, yeah, but I, I, I could have sworn that God would want us to do this. Wouldn't, wouldn't he want us to praise him all night? Wouldn't he want us to... Uh, entreat him all night? Wouldn't he want us to worship him? Wouldn't he want us to confess all night? I was like, yes, he would. He would want us to do that. By the end of it, we're like, this is going to be amazing. I can't wait to do this, right? The point is, Satan expends a lot of effort to keep us off the field. That's it. That's the, because that's the only way he can win, right? And the only way we can lose, what's the only way we can lose? Don't take the field. Don't show up. That's it. You can't lose if you show up. But you can't win if you don't show up. Okay. 
So what field is God telling you to take? What field, where is he telling you to leave? Where is he telling you to go? Paul Sargianis ran, ran through this recently with his, his Christian counseling thing. Like, this can't be right. Uh, Alex Zaccaroli ran through it. Like, really, Lord? You're telling me to give up being a lawyer to go be a pastor? Really? Can this be right? Yeah. Just go do it. Just show up. Do something ridiculous for the Lord that he's telling you to do for him because he told you to do it. Okay, so in the actual word, Jehovah Nisi, what do banners signify or what do they do in the Bible? What's great is in Christ, in God, right, that we've got a number of different usages of this word Nisi. It can be a banner, an ensign, a signal. It can be a guidon. It can be a battle standard. But the key thing is they're not merely representational when they're in God. These banners in God have power in and of themselves. Like we see with Moses' banner, his staff held over his head. It has power in and of itself, the power to part the Red Sea through God, the power to bring water forth from a rock through God, the power to uh, have victory over the Amalekites through God. Then we see God tells Moses in Numbers 21, make a bronze snake, set it up on a standard, and then everyone who looks at it won't just remember about God, they can actually be healed. God's banners have power that normal banners don't. But God's banners also fulfill same purpose as, as secular banners. Again, in terms of flags, they can be used. God's banners can be used to claim territory, right, or to assemble nations. So it says in uh, Isaiah 11.10, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner to the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Then in verse 12, he will raise a banner. We know this is Jesus Christ for the nations, and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people and of Judah and from the four quarters of the earth. Then in Isaiah 49, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up a banner to the peoples. And then in Isaiah 62, pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. Now, when we start talking about assembling nations or claiming territory, to be honest with you, today's the Marigold birthday, right? And so what do I think of in terms of a flag raising, do you suppose? Boom! Okay, but there's a reason I wrote those numbers on there, 4 and 31. Why? They raised this banner on the fourth day of a 31-day battle, right? They claimed the island before it was theirs. It took another eight days just to get to the second airfield, which is why they were there in the first place, right? Then it took, another, it took a full 13 to get to 75% of the island of the third airstrip that was under construction. It took 26 days to get to the end of the island, and it took 31 days for them to finally secure the entire island. They raised it on the fourth day. They made the claim early, and then they went about making it happen, fulfilling the vision. Then we got someone that's even crazier, Christopher Columbus. This clown lands somewhere in the Caribbean near Cuba, right? Walks on the shore with his flag says, I claim the Western Hemisphere. You, you're on a little tiny beach on an island. I claim the Western Hemisphere for Spain. This is crazy, right? This is a linear distance north to south of over 9,700 miles. This is a surface area bigger than the moon of 15 over 15 million square miles. That's crazy. But you know what? That's not the crazy part. That's the crazy part. Over a couple hundred years, 
Spain and Christopher Columbus go about making it real. Everywhere you see in any shade of blue up there, the Spanish Empire owned by the height of their power in the New World. The point is, they claimed it, and then they went about making it happen. Okay? So, what does this mean to us? We have in Joshua 1.3, where God tells Joshua, everywhere you set your foot will be yours. Then we're told in Isaiah 11.10 that Jesus is the banner for every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. We're told in John 12:32 that Jesus himself says if I be lifted up if I be lifted up I will draw all men to myself then Psalm 24 is that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live within it guess what he already owns it all we're doing is claiming something that he's going to own anyway so what's our action as a result here it's plant the flag our banner Jesus Christ claim vast swaths of territory, spiritual territory, in Jesus' name, and then set about making it happen. Start with your family. Sit there and plant the flag, and then your extended family, then your work, then your co-workers, and get ridiculous. Listen to the Lord. What are you telling me to claim? And then just go do it. It may take years, like it did in Christopher Columbus, right? But claim it. And then go out and win it for the kingdom, for God's kingdom. Now, incense is another way we can do this. It's basically, in Dallas's brain, a naval flag. So what do we see it in the Bible? We see it here in Isaiah 33, where it talks about it, use it as a sail. But then in Ezekiel 27, use it more specifically. It says, fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail and served as your banner. So when we're talking about incense, we're not talking about that guy, right? Okay, it's not this guy, and, and what's great is, you see uh, the, the Navy guy there behind him is like, yeah, that's right, jump up. And you see the Marines like, I can't be here. <laughs> the Marine in the background is like, why am I with these people? <laughs> we got guys skipping across the stage. This is wrong, right? So we're not talking about these incense, right? We're talking about what? These incense, which is a flag on a vessel, a naval vessel, and it shows two things. One, that this vessel is the possession of that country. Two, it falls under the protection of that country. It's flagged. It's a U.S. flagged vessel. To touch it is to touch America, right? And if you touch it, then you fall you fall prey, likely, to our man of wars or, or American foreign policy. But the same is true in the Bible. In Revelation 2, it tells us that God will give us a new name. Right, uh, with a white stone written on it. He will flag us. Then, in Revelation 22, it says that God's name will be on our forehead. We'll be flagged, we'll be identified with him as his possession, worthy of what? His protection. And it goes further. It tells us in Revelation 7 and 9, right? It talks about this idea. It says, do not harm the land. Do not harm the trees or the sea until... We put the seal of our God on their foreheads till we have flagged them and their lives. Only those with God's seal escape the fifth trumpet judgment. The point is, we also have a say in this. If you look in Exodus 12, what do the Jews do? They put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the threshold of their houses. They flag their vessel. They flag their house and their family as being one, the possession of the living God, and two, worthy of his protection. So what's our action? 
Our action is to put the blood of the lamb on everything. Now you see this is metaphoric. This is metaphor. I mean on your thought life. Put the flag your thought life, your sex life, your marriage, your kids, your possessions, your car, your house, your cube, your cubicle, whatever it is. Why not flag it as the possession of the living God and worthy of his protection? But then we also use this as a battle standard. And this one's near and dear to my own heart. So in the Bible, we talk about it as a battle standard in Psalm 60, verse 4. But those who fear you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Isaiah 18. All you people of the world, you who live on the earth, when a banner is raised on the mountains, you'll see it. And when a trumpet sounds, you'll hear it. Isaiah 30. A thousand, a thousand will flee at the threat of just one of you. At the threat of five of you, all will flee. Till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. And then Jeremiah 51, lift up a banner against the walls of Babylon. Reinforce the guard, station the watchman, prepare an ambush. The Lord will carry out his purpose, his decree against the people of Babylon. So when we think about this, why, why is it so important to have a battle standard? So when you look at these massive battles, massive ancient battles, you have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of troops all on the same battlefield, right, with horses and maybe elephants and all kinds of weird stuff and dust kicked up. Literally, when we went to the prayer march, a few guys were there, we got lost. There was only, there was like 40 or 30 or 20 or 30 or 40 of us, and we couldn't stay together. Literally, I walked around with this tiny little American flag holding it over my head, trying to give them something to focus off of, right? We're not even fighting, and we couldn't keep stay together. So they fixed that through this process of battle standards. That's what these guys are holding. This is a specific representation of it. And literally, that guy's job is to hold it up so that I can figure out where my unit is at all times and move in that direction. But more importantly, he has another job. What is it? He stays with this guy. You see this guy at the bottom right-hand corner of the screen who's got the transverse crested helmet. That's the commander. That's the centurion. The battle standard, the standard bearer, his job is to stay with that guy. Right? Because you can't hear everybody yelling out there over the battle. All you can see is the standard. How does the commander move his unit? He moves. He leads the way. He fights. What's the standard bearer's job? Stay with the commander. You want to know where the commander is? Look where the standard is. How do I know the standard's over there? Because he's with the commander. Wherever the standard goes, I just follow it. Whatever the commander does, that's what I do. What does that mean to us? I think the, uh, it's obvious, right? Jesus is strange because he is our battle standard, number one, but he's also our commander. So how does that work? Galatians 5.25, it says, since we live by the Spirit, we're also supposed to keep in step with the Spirit. We are the standard bearers. This, this guy right here that you see, that's got the legion, legionnaire helmet, or the, the, he's the standard bearer. That's literally where we get the, <laughs> the phrase, maintaining the standard, bearing the standard, living up to the standard, keeping up with the standard set by who? By the commander. Literally, we are the standard bearers. We bear Jesus Christ in our flesh everywhere we go. Now, here's the question is, are you the standard bearer? Am I the standard bearer? for my family or my flock. And if we're going to do this, number one, we have to do one thing first, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. But that's not enough. Second step, 
we got to keep in step with him. Galatians 5.25, right? If we live by the Spirit, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. And then the last part, we have to bear the standard high enough for everyone to see in the confusion. Does your family know? Is that standard held up? Are we a closet Christian? Or is standard held high enough for other people to be attracted to it? Okay? So who's our banner? What's our banner? Jesus Christ is our banner. We claim everywhere we step in his name. We make vast claims on places that don't even exist today. Okay? Number two, ensigns. We make our life an ensign. We flag. We cover our entire lives in the blood of the Lamb. In fact, it tells us in Revelation 12 that we overcome the beast by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of our testimony, we have no plan B, right? There's no plan B. There's no political party. There is no other solution, no fallback, no retreat. It's literally win or die. That's it. And we flag every element of our lives under the blood of Jesus Christ. Then we bear our standard high. What did Jesus say about this? Luke 9, right? It says, take up your crosses. How often? Daily. And do what? Follow me. We're the standard bearer. We've stayed behind the commander, keeping in step with him. And we've got to pray. We've got to listen for his voice. Where is he telling us to go? What is he telling us to do? So the questions I have for you and for me is, here's a big one. Would your wife and kids say, not you, would they say that you bear the battle standard high for everyone to see, that you keep pace with Jesus, and that you lead them in doing so? Now, look, this isn't meant to be a poke in the chest. Gentlemen, we've got to get good at doing AARs, at looking at ourselves and doing an honest debrief and just saying, okay, if we're off track, let's get on it. And if we're on track, let's pick up the pace, right? So we've got to do an honest evaluation. The second part is, where is God telling you to show up so that he can show out way? Here's the big one. What keeps you from doing it? What keeps me from doing it? Okay, the last part is, what big thing have you boldly claimed for Jesus Christ before you actually complete it? Or what, what would you like to I did this recently with my blood side of the family, not my extended side of the family. And you know what? It took years, years. But God's pretty much brought it about. There's only, we're, we're still waiting on three. You know, they're my, they're my extended, they're my in-laws, but we're still waiting on three, and we're going to get there. The point is, make a big claim and then bring it about. So I'm going to pray for us if, as we jump into our groups, if you guys don't mind. So, Lord, we just pray that you'd, you'd be with us, Lord, that you'd set our hearts on fire, Lord, that you'd give us big things to do in your name.